0: In our hearts and minds, Lord, we do fly to you. So that whatever's going on in our lives, you would take our lives and make sense to us. And where it all seems impossible to us, Lord, give us the grace to fly to you and trust you in those moments. In your mercy, Lord Jesus, please take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire. Set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Let me ask you to take the uh, Sunday to Sunday, the news sheet, which is absolutely loaded. I was just chatting with uh, Doug Rerig, one of our staff who leads our high school ministry. They've got a huge kickoff tonight right here. But that's not what I want to speak about. If you open it up, so that it's one big sheet and look to the middle of it you'll see what on earth am I here for and of course you haven't missed because we've been promoting this next series of sermons under this general title what on earth am I here for and it lays out there the fuller program not only gives you the uh, sermon titles but you see the passage about small groups. Many of you have signed up, and I thank you for that. Very grateful to you, because as a congregation, it's our desire in leadership, and I know it's God's desire to get you connected with others in this church. So a part of this series is a small group experience week by week. Mine starts tomorrow night at my home. A group of a dozen or 20 of us are going to be meeting there and discussing again, having watched a video presentation, something about this series. But one of the things I want you to uh, really grasp and believe me for as your pastor is that you need to get connected and a small group is a brilliant way to do it. There's still time to get signed up. So go out into our commons area there and uh, find Bob Mason who directs that ministry. He'll be sitting at a table. Get signed up. It's not too late. Now having said that, what on earth am I here for? I don't know if you ever find yourself running into a room in a house to go get something and you think, oh, what am I doing here? What am I looking for? Happens to me from time to time. I don't know if you ever run into an object whether it's in a drawer or in the basement of your house, and you wonder what on earth it is. In fact, you look at it and you say, what's that for? And the question, what on earth am I here for, is, in that same structure, one of those rational responses of the human mind to make sense of something to make sense of our lives. When you ask the question, it presumes that there is a purpose for living. Intuitively, we know that. And so we ask the question, what on earth am I here for? And it presumes that there is some kind of rational response to what in our lives is a rational question. That's because we are rational beings. We are not irrational. We are constantly trying to make sense of one thing or another, ask questions which are rational questions, generally speaking, looking for some kind of an answer or response. Life is like that. Things need to make sense. And if we can't make sense of them, then it looks or feels almost senseless. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Irish potato famine, but in Ireland there was a terrible potato famine, which is um, a staple diet of most of the European countries, but it was a real famine. And that's where many of the Irish came to the USA to find a new life and new sustenance. But the government did a make-work program of building roads in Ireland. But the roads didn't go anywhere. It was just a make-work plan to put some money in their pockets in order to be able to maybe get beyond the famine. And when the men working on those roads discovered, which they did, that those roads went nowhere. They gave up. They just gave up. Who wants to be building a road that doesn't go anywhere? Who wants to be working at something and it leads to nothing? Well, you and I have that question about our lives. What am I here for? What is my life for? What is my purpose in life? Very famous atheist, Bertrand Russell, made this statement Unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. Because the only other alternative is that if there is no God, is that then there is no purpose. And you can maybe invent your own purpose, give yourself something to live for, whether it's success in business, or pleasure, or making money, whatever. Building a home, Raising children, having a family, falling in love, getting another degree. We are all, at the heart of us, ourselves, purposeful. But if there is no real purpose to anything, then there is a disconnect. So an atheist made this comment that you have to assume that there is a God in order for life to have any purpose. No God, no purpose. That is, we all got here by chance, by accident, and by whatever evolution and those millions of mutations have done, they've produced what is, but all accidentally. There's no overruling intelligence or mind or design Therefore, there is no overruling purpose. And as brilliant as it all is, and as brilliant as some of our minds are, for all that we may ask ourselves and stretch one way or another, emotionally, with our wills, with our hearts, with our passions, with our lives, with the time we have, the energy we have, if there is no God, there is no purpose. That's a tough conclusion. One professor, who was professor of philosophy at Northeastern University in Illinois, his name was Hugh Moorhead, and he wrote to two and two hundred and fifty well-known intellectuals. He made the decision as to who they were, and he asked this question, from which of their answers he was going to write a book. And the question was this, what do you find to be the meaning of life? So here are 250 very bright intellectuals, probably in the educational industry, And they're asked that question. Some at best gave their best guess is what they said. Some wrote back and said they hadn't a clue. Others wrote back and said if you ever discover a purpose for life, write and let me know. Obviously, 250 intellectuals most of them presumably without any knowledge of God or faith in God or trust in God to make sense of life and give it purpose. But isn't it interesting, and this is one of the evidences that there is a God, there is a design and there is a purpose, that we are looking for it. C.S. Lewis, with one of his quick turns of thought, said this. Listen very carefully. He said, if the world were irrational, we would never know it. We would be a part of the irrationality. In other words, if there is no purpose, there is no plan, we wouldn't even be asking the question. Because we'd be a part of the whole irrationality of it. And some folks deliberately try to live that way. Which is amazing. Let me quote one other author. His name is Andrei Bitov. A Russian novelist who grew up in communist Russia. Russia. And on one very dreary day, he was riding the metro in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. The metro being an underground railway system, such as they have in Washington, D.C., Boston, Massachusetts, London in particular. They have them in Paris. Underground railway system. And He was down there in that underground railway system. And suddenly, all by itself, in his 27th year while riding the metro in Leningrad, he said, I was overcome with a despair so great that life seemed to stop at once, preempting the future entirely, let alone any meaning. suddenly all by itself a phrase appeared and this was the phrase without god life makes no sense repeating it out loud in astonishment he says i rode that phrase up the moving staircase the escalator Coming up out of the metro, got out of the metro and walked into God's light. In other words, he had this existential experience of realizing that there must be a God. And he's coming up out of the dark, darkness of the subway system out into the brightness of daylight. And it was a metaphor. As he took that idea and between that idea on the train underground and walking out onto the street, he drew the conclusion there must be a God, life must have purpose and that became the beginning of his enlightenment. I went through a very similar experience myself as a lad of about 14, drew the conclusion that if there is no God, then my going to school, getting an education, getting a good job, living securely, having a family, was all for naught. One day you die, it's all over, and that's it. In fact, that leads a lot of people, and I began to think that way for a while, that you may as get as much pleasure as you can for as long as you've got, because you don't know how long you've got And pleasure is, it seems, something worthwhile living for. Well, just like Bitoff, I came to the conclusion there must be a God. And that was the beginning of my coming to faith. Just coming to terms with that. Now, one other thing before we come to the Scripture. In determining who God is, and thereby determining how we are supposed to live and discovering how he's designed us and what is our purpose in life. You've only got two major ways that you might come to a conclusion. One is speculation. 250 philosophers how do you find meaning in life? What's your meaning? So they speculate. You've got speculation, and you could do the same thing. Look around you and speculate as to what God's like and what purpose must be. Or revelation. That is, that that God reveals himself to us. Some have drawn the conclusion if there is a God who's created all this he would want us to know it and find the various means other than speculation to reveal himself to us. Well amazingly across the span of history and the Bible records this what you have is God revealing himself. And the ultimate revelation is when God became a human being and came amongst us. In Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ there was a great act of revelation as he became one of us. Now in that great act of revelation he points himself As the creator, to the word of God, as the revelation of God, that we may know the truth about God, and in that, know the truth about ourselves. Jesus made great statements concerning the word of God, even in prayer to God. Acknowledging that he had revealed himself, and that this word was a living word. That he was communicating And Jesus himself spoke from this word and lived by this word and fulfilled this word. So that ultimate revelation is Jesus coming amongst us and he came with a purpose. I don't know if you caught it, but in the reading from the Gospel of John, when the disciples are trying to get Jesus to stop and eat, They'd gone to get lunch. And chapter four of John is a much larger story, but in the middle of it, you've got this little scene where the disciples, having gone to get lunch, bring it back. People are coming out to meet and see Jesus because of a woman he met at the well who was living one messed up life, had been through five husbands, and was living with a man who was not her husband. And Jesus put his finger on that and she perceived him to be the prophet and the prophet who should come. And as the story unfolded, she drew the conclusion that he must be the Messiah. And she went back to her little town from the well where they were standing in conversation and called everybody to come and meet Jesus saying, could this be the Messiah? He told me everything I'd ever done. And so people were coming out to Jesus. And the disciples had been to that same town, gotten lunch, and they'd come back, maybe walking in amongst the crowd, and now they're trying to stop Jesus speaking to these people who are coming and asking questions to stop and have lunch. To which Jesus said this, my food, is to do his, the Father's will, and to see it finished, to see it accomplished. And in that, Jesus was speaking about a purpose for his life. He was there to do the Father's will. And not only just in some sort of existential sense, keep on doing it, he knew his purpose and he wanted to see it accomplished, finished. He was traveling through life with a clear purpose. And he knew that it would lead to the cross. He knew his name, Jesus, Savior, was an intimation that he had come to save us from our sins. He knew what his purpose was. And he was living his life on purpose. And in the same way, our epistle reading from Ephesians, you've got this remarkable statement. In fact, if you look in your service sheet, find page 6, you have this reading in front of you. And it's Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. It's the last verse that was read. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship, created by God, further, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We spend the balance of our time just looking at that simple statement that we are God's workmanship. Now in two ways we are God's workmanship. In the first place, he created us. In the second place, via the Lord Jesus, we were created anew spiritually through coming to faith in Christ so we are God's workmanship and created through Christ Jesus recreated made new for good works which God prepared ahead of time in advance that we should do them Now, three very simple truths are established by that statement. Number one, that being God's workmanship, that Almighty God is at work in our lives, in creation and redemption, using the big words, God at work in us. We are not an accident. We are not here accidentally. God has a purpose in mind. He's gone to work. He has created us, as scripture says, after his likeness. That's a huge statement. Self-aware, self-conscious, moral beings, able to make decisions, able to participate in creative acts. All of it mirroring the wonderful God who created us. We are who we are because we are God's workmanship created very uniquely. Even where you've got identical twins born from one mother, their fingerprints are different. There may be a lot that looks alike, they are really different. Haven't you ever looked at your children, those of you who've married and had children, you wonder how they could be as they are? I mean, none of our kids are the same. Same mom, same dad, same upbringing. They are so distinctively different. Just at the human level, we can perceive it. But when you realize that you and I are God's workmanship, he created us. We are unique. There isn't another you. There wasn't one, there won't be one. Even if somebody looks like you, just as snowflakes are distinctive and fingerprints are distinctive, so are you. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. Rick Warren says this. You may have had illegitimate parents, really didn't do their job. But you are not an illegitimate child. God has a plan for you. That's such an amazing piece of ministry you are unique and you are uniquely loved by by God to be created in Christ Jesus. That bespeaks of our coming to faith in him and being made new by him. As Paul says in another place, if any man or woman is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. Everything is made new. The old things are passed away. So, God comes uniquely to draw each one of us. It's not like He throws a net to catch fish, and whatever He gets in the net, that's what He gathers. He comes looking for us one by one, seeking us individually. That's the point of the the story where Jesus speaks about a hundred sheep and one got lost. And the shepherd, and it's the good shepherd who's telling the story, Jesus, the shepherd goes looking for the one that was lost until he find it. God has a purpose for you, comes seeking you to draw him to him to draw you to himself, and then the amazing statement that he's already got prepared for you good works to do, a life to live. People to reach, decisions to make, influences to exert, a life to be spent. It's an extraordinary thing. God has a purpose in mind for us, both in creating us, in sending Jesus to die for us, and drawing us to Jesus and making us new in Him. Have you discovered your life purpose? Somebody was asking me just recently as we were talking, it was a young person I was talking to, about how you find out what you were going to do. And they said, what did you think you were going to do when you were in school? I said, well, I thought at one time I was going to be a truck driver. Because I like travel. I like the idea of not being cooped up in a room. Then I thought maybe a better idea would be to be a newspaper reporter and run around and do different kinds of stories. And I went to my English teacher and said... I'd like to be a, a newspaper reporter. How can I get on that? He said, Will you start writing articles and bring them to me? And then later, because I loved math and physics, I got into engineering. That's what I really got into. And then I came to know Jesus. In the middle of that, and when I'd finished my engineering, I ended up offering myself to ministry because along the way, through Trying Sunday school teaching as a volunteer, going and working with young people as a volunteer. Being young, it was a natural thing to hang out with other kids. Going away to camp with young people as a volunteer, helping at a hospital where they had services as a volunteer, getting involved, getting engaged, getting connected. I sense God calling me to be a preacher. I took a shot at it in a a hospital service. The first sermon I preached was to a bunch of sick people lying around in beds in a hospital. One of those old-fashioned wards. They gave me 10 minutes to speak. The only two preachers I'd ever heard were Billy Graham, by whom I came to faith, and my pastor, who was a straight-ahead masculine preacher. So if that's preaching, that's what I did. And for 10 minutes, I fired it out, everything I knew about being related to Jesus. Walking to the elevator with the other young adults that were in that service, one of them said to me, John, you were just like Billy Graham. (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) But in that, just that simple statement, I thought, wow. (laughs) doesn't mean you've all got to quit whatever you're doing and become a preacher but God does have a destiny for you and a purpose for you listen when it says we are his work and Christ's workmanship created in God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared beforehand he knows what that destiny is listen Can you imagine this conversation in heaven? It's purely imaginary, but can you imagine God looking at you and having a clue what to do with you? No clue. So in your imagination, see him looking at you and scratching his head and thinking, what on earth am I going to do with this one? And since he hasn't a clue, he turns to the Lord Jesus, sitting at his right hand, and says to him, what are we going to do with this one? You died for her. You gave your life for her. You must have had a plan in doing it. Son, what are we going to do with this one? And he totally takes a good look at you, and then says to his dad, beats me haven't a clue. So the two of them turn to the Holy Spirit, who's the empowerer, and they say, what are we going to do with this one? And he says, give up the ghost. Not a chance. That's never going to happen. That is an imaginary conversation. But it makes the point. God, out of his great love for you, earlier it says in this chapter, sent Jesus to rescue you. So as we spend our time going through these weeks, we're going to be looking at God's purpose for our lives, for your life. Those small groups are a part of being able to get at that. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in your love for us, continue this work by which you draw us to yourself and direct us to your ends in mind. Encourage us, Lord Jesus. To believe that you love us personally. Have a plan for us individually. And that you're hearing us now as we talk to you. And that you will direct us. Thank you Lord Jesus.